0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of My name is Bob. I'm reading today from Spurgeon's autobiography. We're on chapter 58 of the book. It's called Weekday Services from 1858 to 1816. We have this little blurb from Mr. Spurgeon himself at the very beginning. Preach. Preach twice a day. I can and will do, but still... There is a travailing in preparation for it, and even the utterance is not always accompanied with joy and gladness. And God knoweth that if it were not for the good that we trust is to be accomplished by the preaching of the word, it is no happiness to a man to be well known. It robs him of all comfort to be from morning until night hunted for labor, to have no rest for the sole of his foot or for his brain. To have people asking, as they do in the country, and when they want to get into a cart, uh, will it hold us? And never thinking whether the horse can drag them. And so they ask, uh, will you preach at such and such a place? Uh, you're preaching twice. Couldn't you manage to go to the next town or village and preach again? Everyone else has a, a constitution. The minister is supposed to not have any. And if he kills himself by overwork, he's condemned as imprudent. I bless God that I have a a valiant corps of friends who, day and night, besiege God's throne on my behalf. I would beseech you again, my brethren and sisters, by our loving uh, days that are past, by all the hard fighting that we have had side by side with each other, not to cease to pray for me now. The time was when, in hours of trouble, you and I have bent our knees uh, together in God's house. We have prayed that he would give us a blessing. You remember that great and sore troubles rolled over our head. And now that God has brought us into a large place and so greatly multiplied us, let us still cry unto the living God, asking him to bless us. What shall I do if you cease to pray for me? Let me know the day when you give up praying for me, for then I must give up preaching. And I must cry, O my God, take me home, for my work is done. That was preached in 1857. I can say, and this is another little thing from him, and God is my witness that I never yet feared the face of man, be he who or what he may. But I often tremble, yeah, I always do, in ascending the pulpit, lest I should not faithfully proclaim the gospel to poor perishing sinners. The anxiety of rightly preparing and delivering a discourse so that the preacher may fully preach Christ to his hearers and pray them in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God, is such as only he knows who loves the souls of men. It is no child's play to be the occupant of a pulpit. He who finds it to be so may find it to be something more fearful than devil's play when the day of judgment shall come. That was in 1858. Well, when the project for the building of the tabernacle was fairly launched, the pastor set to work most energetically in gathering the funds needed for the great enterprise. By means of his preaching, speaking, and lecturing, a very large proportion of the required amount was collected. In many cases, half the proceeds were devoted to local objects and the remainder given to Mr. Spurgeon for his new chapel. But in other instances, the whole sum was added to the building fund. Scarcely a single monthly list of contributions was issued without the inclusion of several of these items. The congregation at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall was of such a special character that it was only on rare occasions that the young minister could be absent on the Lord's Day. Once, when he did spend a Sabbath as well as some weekdays in Scotland, he was able, on his return to pay into the treasury the sum of 391 pounds as the net result of his visit to Glasgow and Edinburgh. He also continued, as far as he was able, to preach on behalf of various provincial churches which sought his aid. And it sometimes happened that where the collections had been given one year towards the new tabernacle, the next year Mr. Spurgeon would go again and raise as large a sum as possible for the funds of those who had previously helped him. A bare outline of these weekday services, even if it could be made, would occupy far more space than can be spared in this work. There's no need to attempt the task, for that campaign of love is recorded on high, and it is gladly and gratefully remembered in thousands of the cities and towns and villages of the United Kingdom. And the story of it has been told again and again from sire to son in almost every part of the land. Eternity alone will reveal how great was the young evangelist's influence upon the religious life of that portion of the 19th century. And those who formed a part of his vast audiences may well treasure in their memories and hand on to their descendants says of the notable incidents of those long past days. Now just a few representative instances only can be given, from which may be gathered something of the character of the labors more abundant in which the new Park Street pastor was engaged in addition to his arduous occupation in connection with his ever-growing church and work. In London, Mr. Spurgeon's services were constantly in request every day or hour that was not required to meet the claims of his pastorate, and he was ever the ready and willing advocate of all who were downtrodden and oppressed. In a discourse upon Isaiah, Um, 62.10, Gather Out the Stones, delivered at the Scotch Church, Regent Square, on February 22, 1858, in aid of the Early Closing Association, he gave utterances to, to sentiments which are as appropriate to the present time as to the occasion when they were first spoken although early closing has made great advances during the intervening period. After trying to remove uh, out of the way of those who desire to tread the heavenly road such stones as, uh, number one, the supposed sacred character of the buildings in which the gospel was preached, or the obscure and learned language of many of the preachers, or the, the inconsistencies of or gloominess of professors of religion, uh, Mr. Spurgeon thus referred to the object for which he had been asked to preach. And now, he said, what else have you to say? Perhaps you reply, what you say is well and good. No doubt religion is a holy and heavenly thing. But, sir, there is one more stone in my path. Can you take that away? I am so engaged in business that it is utterly impossible for me to attend to the concerns of my soul. From Monday morning to Saturday night, or rather till Sunday morning, It is work, 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 and I scarcely seem to throw myself upon my bed before I have to rise in the morning and resume my tasks. You invite me to come to your place of worship on the Sabbath morning. Do you wish me to go there to sleep? You ask me to come and listen to the minister. If you fetched an angel from heaven and gave him Gabriel's trumpet with which he could wake the dead, then I might listen." But I require something almost as powerful as that to keep my poor eyelids open. I should be snoring while the saints were singing. Why should I come to mar your worship? What is the use of the minister telling me to take the yoke of Christ upon me because his yoke is easy and his burden is light? I know not whether Christ's yoke be easy, but I know that the yoke a so-called Christian population puts upon me is not easy. I have to toil as much as if I were a slave and the Israelites in the brick kills of Egypt could hardly have sweated more fearfully under the taskmaster's lash than I do. Oh, sir, this is the great stone in the midst of my path and it so impedes me that it's all in vain for you to talk to me of Christianity while this obstacle is in the way. I tell you, I tell you all, this barrier is like the great stone that was laid at the door of the sepulcher of the dead Christ. Unless you try to remove it, where is the hope of getting these people under the sound of the word? It is for this reason that I came, this evening, to preach a sermon on behalf of the early closing movement. I felt that I could not make that matter the staple of my discourse, but that I might bring it in as one of the points to which I would ask your very special attention, and I'm endeavoring to do so. I do think, Christian people, that you ought to take this stone out of the path of those who are without. And to do so, you must put a stop to that evil but common custom of visiting shops and houses of business at a late hour. If you make a man work so many hours in the six days, really it's twelve days in six, for what is it better than, than that when he has two days labor crowded into every one? then how can you expect the Sabbath to be kept sacred by him? And even if the man is willing so to keep it, how can you imagine that he could be in a proper frame of devotion when he comes into the house of God? Our Lord Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Were he not, the salvation of poor dressmakers and young men employed in drapers and other shops would be impossible. For it is saving to the uttermost when he saves them notwithstanding their exhaustion. and gives them strength to feel and repent when they have scarcely physical and mental power enough left for any effort at all. O oh, brethren and sisters, gather out the stones. If you cannot take them all away, do not strew the road more thickly with them by unthinkingly keeping your fellow creatures at work when they ought to be at rest. There are many young men and women who are seeking something higher than the dust and ashes of this world, who might be converted to Christ, and who might be happy, but who are restrained because they have not the time which they desire for seeking the Lord. I say not that it is a valid excuse for them to make, for very little time is needed for the exercise of repentance and faith. But I do say that there are hundreds and thousands who are hindered from coming to Christ and have their early religious impressions checked and damped and their convictions stifled, and the first dawn of a better life quenched within them because of the cruel system of the present state of society. I remember seeing a good farmer stop his chase and and let his old gray pony stand still while he got down to pick off the road the bottom of a glass bottle and throw it over the hedge. Ah, he said, I remember how my pony cut his foot by stepping on a glass bottle and I should not like anyone to lame a valuable horse in the same way. So I thought I would get out and remove the cause of danger. Well, let all of us act in that same fashion as that old farmer did and gather out all the stones that may be an occasion of stumbling to any of our brothers and sisters. Well, it must have been a memorable sight for those who saw the Surrey Gardens Music Hall packed on a weekday morning, April 28, 1858, when Mr. Spurgeon preached the annual sermon of the Baptist Missionary Society from the psalm that says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow, cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot, in the fire. This discourse is published in the New Park Street pulpit under the title The Desolations of the Lord, the Consolation of His Saints, so it need not be described at length, but it is interesting to note Dr. Campbell's comment on the new era which had dawned in connection with the society's anniversary. He said the missionary sermon of Mr. Spurgeon on Wednesday at the Surrey Music Hall, was a magnificent affair. The immense edifice was crowded to overflowing at the early hour of eleven o'clock in the forenoon. The great preacher was, as usual, completely at home, full of heart, vivacity, business. Mr. Spurgeon cannot devote weeks, if not months, to the preparation of such a sermon, and then take a fortnight's rest to recruit his strength before the great day. All his days are great." and they come in such rapid succession as to exclude the possibility of finish and elaboration, even if he aspired to it. But with him, there is no aiming at greatness. Exhibition has no place in his thoughts. He scorns it. What the occasion supplies amid ceaseless toils, past and coming, is all that he seeks and all that he gives. In the proper sense, he preaches, and preaches not to the minister's, but to the people, and he has his reward. He has no conception of reading a treatise by way of a May meeting sermon uh, extending to two or three hours. This he would deem a perversion of his office and an insult to his hearers. His discourse on Wednesday was of the usual length and of the usual character, only throughout highly missionary. Common sense in this, as in most of Mr. Spurgeon's doings, obtained for for once, a thorough triumph. The collection amounted to nearly 150 pounds. End of quote. Two notable weekday sermons were preached by Mr. Spurgeon on Friday, June 11, 1858, on the grand stand Epsom Racecourse. The text in the afternoon was singularly suitable to such a place So run that you may obtain. In the evening, the discourse was a powerful gospel invitation founded upon Isaiah 55.1. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. There was a large congregation on each occasion. Sixty pounds was contributed toward the funds of a chapel in Epsom, and none who were present were likely to forget the unusual purpose to which Satan's seat in the race course was that day devoted in August 1858, Mr. Spurgeon paid his first visit to Ireland and preached four sermons in Belfast. He gave his services freely in order that the whole of the proceeds might help the Young Men's Intellectual Improvement Association to build new schoolrooms. That he was in a very unfit state of health for making such an effort is evident from his remarks at the music hall service on the Sabbath morning after his return. Preaching on the words, As thy days, so shall thy strength be, he said, Children of God, can you not say that this has been true hitherto? I can. It might seem egotistical if I were to talk of the evidence I have received of this during the past week, but nevertheless, I cannot help recording my praise to God. I left this pulpit last Sunday as sick as any man ever left a pulpit, And I left this country, too, as ill as I could be. But no sooner had I set my foot upon the other shore where I was to preach the gospel than my strength entirely returned to me. I had no sooner buckled on the harness to go forth to fight my master's battle than every ache and pain was gone and all my sickness fled. And as my day was, so certainly was my strength. The first sermon was an earnest appeal to the undecided. The text was Mark 12:34, And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said to him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Twenty-three years afterward, Mr. Spurgeon received from a missionary the following cheering note, 23 years later. He says, Your first sermon in Belfast caused me to decide finally to enter the ministry. Since then, I have given ten years to mission work in Damascus, where I built the first church ever erected for the spiritual worship of the true God in that city. I built two churches on Mount Hermon, and again and again I have preached there your sermons in Arabic. One of them was delivered on the top of Mount Hermon at a picnic given to our different villagers. The second discourse was upon a subject of which Mr. Spurgeon was especially fond. This is back to Ireland now. In those early days, if he was preaching several sermons at any place, one of them was almost certain to be founded upon Revelation fourteen one to 3 where it says, And I looked, and, lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, And as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. And in the course of the sermon, Mr. Spurgeon usually introduced a few sentences describing his love for the harp. It was so at Belfast as the following extract shows. This is Spurgeon. John says, I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Surely of all instruments, the harp is the sweetest. The organ has a swelling grandeur, but but the harp has a softness and sweetness about it that might well make it a, a fit instrument for a royal musician like David. I must confess that a harp has so great a charm for me that I have sometimes found myself standing in the street listening to some old harper making music on his harp. I have bidden him come into the house and play to me that I might prepare a sermon while he played. And I have found comfort, and my heart has been stirred within me as I have listened to the thrilling strains. The singing in heaven has all the tender melody of the harp while it thunders like the rolling sea. Why is this? Because there are no hypocrites there and no formalists there to make a jarring noise and spoil the harmony. There are no groans to mingle with the songs which warble from immortal tongues. No pain, nor distress, nor death, nor sin can ever reach that blessed place. There's no drawback to the happiness Of the glorified spirits above, they all sing sweetly there, for they are all perfect. And they sing all the more loudly, because they all owe that perfection to free and sovereign grace. The text of his third Irish sermon was Matthew 28, 5. The angel answered and said to the women, Fear ye not, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified and it was specifically aimed at finding out and comforting true seekers. The last of the four services was held in the Botanic Gardens when it was estimated that 7,000 persons heard the discourse delivered from Matthew one twenty one, that says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Towards the end of the sermon, Mr. Spurgeon told the story of Jack the Huckster, whose theology was comprised in the familiar lines, quote, I'm a poor sinner and nothing at all, but Jesus Christ is my all in all, end of quote. In closing the service, the preacher said, I have to thank you all for the kindness with which I have been received, and especially I have to thank the ministers of Belfast. I never was in a town in my life where I met with such a noble body of men who love the good old truth, and I can say that I love every one of them. I thank them for all the good things they have said to me and concerning me, and I wish them and all my friends a hearty goodbye. May the day come when we shall all meet in heaven. Well, Mr. Spurgeon went to Ireland many times after this, and Irish friends contributed very generously to the building of the tabernacle. On one of his visits, after the great revival, when preaching in Exeter Hall from Amos 9.13, Behold, the days come saith the Lord that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed and the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt that he said, here we are told that the mountains shall drop sweet wine by which we are to understand that conversions shall take place in unusual quarters. Brethren, this day is this promise literally fulfilled to us I have this week seen what I never saw before. It has been my lot these last six years to preach to crowded congregations and to have many, many souls brought to Christ. It has been no unusual thing for us to see the greatest and noblest of the land listening to the word of God. But this week I have seen, I repeat, what my eyes have never before beheld, used as I am to extraordinary sights. I have seen The people of Dublin, without exception, from the highest to the lowest, crowd in to hear the gospel. And I have known that my congregation has been composed in a considerable measure of Roman Catholics, and I have beheld them listening to the word with as much attention as though they had been Protestants. I've noticed military men whose tastes and habits were not like those of the Puritanic minister, but who have Nevertheless, s- sat to listen. Nay, they have come again and have made it a point to find the place where they could hear the best and have submitted to be crowded if they might but hear the word. I've heard two cheering news of men who could not speak without larding their conversation with cuss words who have come to hear the word. They've been convinced of sin, and I trust there's been a work done in them which will last throughout eternity but the most pleasing thing i have seen is this and i must tell it to you hervey once said each floating ship is a floating hell of all classes of men the sailor has been supposed to be the one least likely to be reached by the gospel in crossing over from holyhead to dublin and back to excessively rough passages i spent the most pleasant hours that i ever remember The first vessel that I entered, I found my hand very heartily shaken by the sailors. I thought, what can these men know of me? They began calling me brother. Of course, I felt that I was their brother, but I I did not know how they came to talk to me in that way. It is not usual for sailors to call a minister brother. They paid me the utmost attention. And when I made the inquiry, what makes you so kind? Why, said one, because I love your master, the Lord Jesus. I inquired and found that out of the whole crew, there were but three unconverted men, and that though the most of them had been before God, before without God and without Christ, and yet by a sudden visitation of the Spirit of God, they had nearly all been converted. I talked to many of these men, and more spiritually minded men I never saw. They have a prayer meeting every morning before the boat starts, another prayer meeting after she comes into port, and on Sundays when they lie to off Kingstown or Holyhead, or a minister comes on board and preaches the gospel. Service is held on deck when it is possible, and an eye witness said to me, The minister preaches very earnestly, but I should like you to hear the men pray. I never heard such pleading before. They pray as only sailors can pray. My heart was lifted up with joy to think of a ship being made a floating church, a very Bethel. When I came back by another steamer, I did not expect to have my previous experience repeated, but it was. The the same kind of work had been going on among these sailors. I walked among them and I talked to them. They all knew me. One man took out of his pocket an old leather-covered book in Welsh, He said to me, Do you know the likeness of that man in front? "Uh, Yes, I replied, "I, I think I do. Do you read those sermons? Yes, sir, he answered. We've had your sermons on board ship, and I read them aloud as often as I can. If we have a fine passage coming over, I get a few around me, and I read them a sermon. Another man told me the story of a gentleman who stood laughing while a hymn was being sung. And so one of the sailors proposed that they should pray for him. They did so. And the man was suddenly smitten down and on the quay began to cry for mercy and plead with God for pardon. Ah, sir, said the sailors. We have the best proof that there is a God here. For we have seen this crew marvelously brought to a knowledge of the truth. And here we are, joyful and happy men, serving the Lord. Now. What shall we say of this blessed work of grace but that the mountains drop sweet wine? The men who were loudest with their oaths are now loudest with their songs. Those who were the most daring sons of Satan have become the most earnest advocates of the truth. For Mark, you once get a sailor converted and there's no end to the good he can do. Of all men who can preach well, seamen are the best. The sailor has seen the wonders of God in the deep. The hardy British tar has got a heart that is not made of such cold stuff as many of the hearts of landsmen. When that heart is once touched, it gives big beats and sends great pulses of energy right through his whole frame. And with his zeal and energy, what may he not do? God helping him and blessing him. So far as can be ascertained, Mr. Spurgeon's First sermons to a Welsh audience were delivered in the ancient village of Castleton, midway between Newport and Cardiff, on Wednesday, July 20, 1859. Pastor T. W. Medhurst, who kindly forwards this information, says this, This visit is still greatly talked about by the aged people in the district. I have often been delighted to see their glistening eyes as they have related their recollections of this red letter day in their past experience. Never in the annals of the village, either before or since, has there been anything at all approximating to the scene which was witnessed that day. For some time previously, it had been made known through Monmouthshire and Glamorganshire Glamour- that the popular preacher, C. H. Spurgeon, would deliver two discourses in the open air at Castleton. The excitement among the people, and especially among the inhabitants of the hill districts, in anticipation of the services, was immense. The question, Are you going to hear Spurgeon? took the place of the usual remarks about the weather. The various railway companies ran excursion trains, and the result was an enormous gathering of people from all parts. The first service began at 11 o'clock in the morning, in a field which was admirably adapted for the occasion as it gradually sloped to a level at the bottom. The seats were arranged in a semi-circular form. Everyone had a full view of the preacher, and his powerful voice was distinctly heard by the nine or ten thousand persons assembled. Before announcing his text, Mr. Spurgeon said, My dear friends, I most earnestly and humbly entreat your prayers, that I may be enabled to preach the gospel with power this day. I do not know that at any time I ever felt my own weakness more than I do now. I recollect to what mighty men of God some of you have uh, sometimes listened, ministers whose names ought to be held in reverence as long as any man's name endures on the face of the earth. I can scarcely hope to tread in the footsteps of many of those preachers whom you have heard. This, however, I can say to you. You may have men in Wales who can preach the gospel in a better manner than I can hope to do, but you have no one who can preach a better gospel. Amen. It's the same gospel from first to last and tells of the same Savior who's ready to receive the meanest, the feeblest, the most guilty and the most vile, who come to God by him. May the Holy Spirit graciously rest upon us now. I'll read my text to you from the Gospel according to Matthew, the 28th chapter, the 5th verse, and then Mr. Davies of Haverford West College will read it to you in Welsh, a feat which I cannot accomplish. The sermon was a most powerful discourse, delivered with impassioned earnestness and fire, never surpassed by the most eloquent of the Welsh preachers. The text in the evening was Revelation 14, 1 to 3. Every word of the preacher was plainly audible to the whole of the vast audiences at both the services. And at the close of the day, it was remarked that his voice was as clear and as vigorous as it had been at the beginning. Well... We have more stories about the weekday services. He wasn't just a Sunday preacher. He was always preaching and all over the British Isles, as you see. What a wonderful life this man was privileged to lead. And yet, not without its difficulties, as we've already seen. Well, thank you for being here. Come back. Uh, there's a lot more to do. And, Things all over this website that if you have time, I would hope you will go checking out. I won't list it all right now. If you want to know a little bit more about me personally, go over to YouTube and uh, click in or just type in Bob. I don't mean that. I mean go to Facebook. Then go to YouTube.com and type in my name, Bob from Hackberry House. And you'll see some video stuff there. I've also got a written blog criesfromamongus.com is the name of that place. I do hope you'll go checking some of those out. Meanwhile, Lord willing, we'll be talking again real soon. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Bye-bye.